is brought to you by SWE Advance, supporting the recruitment, retention, and advancement of women in engineering through career resources, professional development, and one-to-one networking opportunities. I'm Joe Miller, moderator of SWE's Diverse Podcast Series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes or your favorite RSS feed, and like or follow us on social media. Visit SWE.org for more details. My guest, Smitha Tharoor, is the founder of Tharoor Associates, a training, coaching, and organizational development company. Her expertise lies in the cultural and people management areas of an organization. She helps others become more conscious of their unconscious bias and also understand the impact that this has on themselves and their work. Smitha has over 25 years' experience within corporate, regional, and international frameworks in the voluntary, private, and public sector establishments in the UK and in India. Smitha, thanks for taking part in this conversation. Thank you. So you've got some unique expertise when it comes to helping others become more conscious of their own unconscious bias. Uh, Tell us what is unconscious bias and why is it important for people to know about Well, very simply put, unconscious bias is exactly what it says. It's a bias that you or I or anyone might have that we are not aware that we have. So as human beings, we often make um, instinctive, implicit decisions about things or other people, um, decisions which might feel right at the time, uh, and often these snap decisions will be right, where we're likely to think that we've assessed the pros and cons, we've considered the outcome, we've weighed the you know, the, the good decisions and the bad decisions. But in reality, what we're actually doing is just instinctively, implicitly reacting to X, to something. Our brains are hardwired to, to, to really categorize people or situations. Uh, and we use very obvious categories like, oh, I don't know, like age and accent and body and um, skin color, gender, and so on. So what I'm trying to say is that an unconscious bias is when you are implicitly, instinctively, um, unconsciously, and I have to use that word again, reacting to a situation, that's what an unconscious bias is. So it's an automatic bias. That's what I'm saying. And we have very little control and very little influence when we are reacting in that particular way because we're not even aware that we are reacting in that particular way. So that's what unconscious bias is, and I don't know whether that makes enough sense because it's something that you would you need to explore and discuss for a for a much longer period of time. But if I were to summarize again what I've just said, we react, we have a bias, and we're not aware we have a bias. And the reason we're not aware that we have a bias is because our brains are hardwired to rapidly categorize people instinctively, and then we or people or, or a situation instinctively. And we react, and that's our bias. And what was the second half? Why is it important? Gosh, it's important at so very many levels. Why is it important to be aware that we have unconscious biases? Well, it's important because of decision-making. It's important because of um, engagement and well-being in an organization. Um, Relationships, not just work relationships, personal relationships um, within an organization, individual and team performance, staff attrition, succession planning, uh, recruitment, I mean, you name it, it's, it's important it's across the board. If we become more aware of our unconscious bias, it will help us at so many different levels. 
Thank you. And, and I know, Smitha, that you grew up in India and have said that that experience taught you the value of tolerance and appreciation of accepting differences. Tell us some more about that. Ah, well, I mean, to begin with, I should just tell you a little bit about the Constitution of India. Uh, the Constitution of India states that India is a secular country. And when I mean secular, I mean accepting of all religions. India does not have an official state religion. And the people of India have freedom of religion. And the state treats all individuals as equal citizens, regardless of whatever religion you might practice. And the school that I went to in Calcutta, uh, the principal of my school was an Irish Catholic nun. And we said, our father who art in heaven every single day of my school life. Whereas at home, my parents were reciting their Hindu prayers. My friends in school, my classmates, were Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Sikh or Hindu or Zoroastrian. Um, in the apartment building that I lived in Calcutta as a child, my parents had a friend who was gay. I studied about the caste system in our history books, but was never told by my parents what caste I was. It had no personal relevance for me. So what I'm trying to say is, growing up in India, I owe a lot of who I am to the liberal accepting upbringing I had in India. The values and ethos that was unconsciously instilled in me by my parents was that all of us are different in different ways, but there's no right or good or bad. It's just, it's just what it is. And another wonderful advantage that I personally had growing up in India was that, as I said to you, I grew up in Calcutta, but I was very, very lucky because my grandmother, in fact, who only passed away last year, lived deep in the village in our ancestral home in Kerala. And every summer we went back to our ancestral home for the summer holidays. Now, this gave me an absolutely amazing, wonderful understanding of urban life and rural life, of urban people, cultures, and customs, and rural people, cultures, and customs. Most of the year, we lived in an apartment um, in, in, in Calcutta, and if you've been to Calcutta, it's a busy, teeming city. Um, we, we lived in an apartment, we had a car, we had hot and cold showers, we had air conditioning, and I spoke in English to my friends in school. And then in the summer... We would go home to the village where my grandmother lived. We drew water from the well. We went for a bath to the local pond. We had a cow in our barn at the outside of the house, and we, we had milk that was freshly drawn, or drawn is not the right word, the milk from our own cow. And we spoke amongst my cousins and uncles and aunts in my mother tongue, which is Malayalam. Now, at that time, I took all this in just for granted. That's what my life was. As a kid, that's what I did. But when I look back now, I realize how privileged I was in having these hugely contrasting experiences and how much it has influenced the way I can, I can see how I perceive the world about differences. And again, about what I was saying earlier on about that's that and that's that. And, and that's just how it is. It doesn't have to be good or bad. That's wonderful. And I know that you've brought those values and that ethos from your childhood experiences now into your work and you've worked in the UK and also in India what insights has, has this given you into the expectations and the needs of different cultures? Well I'll talk about that I suppose in relation more to, to, to work cultures rather than just culture in itself because obviously um, living in London it's a multicultural city and, and, and I'm talking to lots of different nationalities when I'm working here in, in London. But if we talk of work culture of the United Kingdom, of work culture of, the, of, of India, there are some very fundamental differences. I mean, very simply put, and I'm being very simple about this, simplistic about this, but for example, if, if, um, 
you're a new recruit in an office in India, um, the expectation is that you would have to earn my trust. I'm your boss, and you would have to earn my trust. And so you would work very hard at earning my trust. In the UK, on the other hand, if you're a new recruit, my expectation is I have hired you because you know what you're doing. And as long as you don't abuse my trust, I let you get on with it. So there's a level of independence that the individual will have in the United Kingdom that will not happen in India. So then let's imagine that Indian comes to, a, to an office in the UK. He might be seen, he or she might be seen as, for want of a better word, sucking up to their boss because they are wanting to try and earn their trust because that's the cultural expectation in India, whereas it isn't here in London. I mean, I'm speaking in London, and I know people are living in, in, and hearing this in India at some point. So when I say here, I mean in the UK. Um, what other examples? Timing. Uh, you know, in the UK, when we say we've got a meeting at 10 a.m., then the meeting is at 10 a.m. Um, in India, the meeting will be at 10 a.m., but if you're a few minutes late, 5 or 10, it's not a big deal. If we say that a meeting will be from 10 to 11, then in the UK, the meeting will be from 10 to 11. In India, it's very possible the meeting could be from 10 to 11.30, and that's fine. Um, you know, in the UK, you would you'd go out and make a cup of tea. You might have a little bit of a chat uh, around the, the the kettle or the or the or the um, the coffee um, what's it called the coffee maker. But you'd come back to your desk with your cup of tea and coffee and continue working. In India, you might be standing there and talking for forty five minutes. So it, it's productivity is different. Um, hierarchy, even today, people in India have a very hierarchical model in many companies where the senior most person is called ma'am or sir, whereas in the UK you would be called by your first name. You know, hi Joe, hi Smitha, hi Simon, and it's, it's, it's perfectly normal. And, and I remember a, a very funny um, um, story that somebody told me who was working in an Indian company in India and was transferred to their branch in the United Kingdom because, as you probably know, there are many companies who started off in India who now also have um, offices in the UK. And she met with her boss, and her boss said, um, would you like a cup of tea? So she said, yes, I'd love one. And so the boss got up to go and make the cup of tea for her, and the poor girl froze because she'd never had that experience in India. Uh, and she didn't quite know what to do because in India, you would have had another employee, and you would have said, excuse me, can you go and make that tea? The boss wouldn't even do it. So there are all kinds of little little things that I'm throwing out at you. Um, but it's being aware of that and not making a judgment about good and bad, but just saying that's how it is. And so we need to work within that depending on which country you're working in. I completely agree. My, you know, I'm smiling here because my own personal experience of having moved from Australia to the United States. Yeah, I bet. Um, this brings back so many little uh, opportunities like that every day to, to understand that it's <laughs> a really different culture. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I could tell you some similar stories. Um, I bet you the can. Reason, the reason you and I are talking today is because you will be presenting at SWE's WE conference in India, which is being held on April 7th and 8th in Pune in India. And one of your sessions is titled, Are You Conscious of Your Unconscious Bias? So um, what kind of unconscious bias can we have towards gender? Mm, it's a good one. Um, especially woman to woman, and we're speaking, and we're going to go into the SWE conference, and there's, again, obviously all women there again. I'm going to talk about gender more in terms of uh, the female gender rather than 
gender as in man or woman. Um, there was this, I don't know whether you know of this woman called Melissa Phyllis Fisher. She's an anthropologist, and she had done a lot of work around um, gender bias. And she wrote a book called Wall Street Women, where she was exploring gender bias. Uh, I'm going to just read you a small section from it. Um, this is life on Wall Street 50 years ago. So what it says is, the secretaries all had to wear hats and gloves. In the bathrooms, they had light bulbs with the partner or the boss's name on the light bulb. And you happened to be in the bathroom, and if the partner or the boss rang you, and you were in the bathroom, that light would light up, the bulb would light up, and you had to run out immediately. And a little bit more recently, 40 years ago, in 1972, there was an entrance exam paper for a trainee programmer at Merrill Lynch. And the question was, when you meet a woman, what interests you most about her? And the correct answer was, no marks for guessing, beauty. Low scores were given for those who answered intelligence. Now, that was 40 and 50 years ago. And what I'm trying to say is that for over a thousand years, we have identified men and women with different words. We've said men are leaders and providers and are driven. And we've said women are identified as emotional and supportive and caring and likable and so on. So if we are doing this, man or woman, it doesn't matter, but we all do this. We're all, we're all uh, uh, complicit in, in using words like this when we're describing men or women. We hopefully don't have light bulbs in bathrooms and don't ask silly questions like, how, you know, what would you, what, what's your interest in a woman when you, when you, in an entrance exam paper? But we do create our own problems by asking the kind of questions um, like, not questions, asking the kind of, um, using the kind of words like likable and supportive and emotional. So when we're doing this, what we're now doing is unconsciously suggesting that these words are feminine, these words are, are masculine. And so when we then start talking about a woman who might be driven or is seen as a leader, we, it doesn't fit naturally with the way we are expecting them to be. And that then creates our own unconscious bias. I mean, you're probably going to say you've helped this, but I'm going to say it anyway. A, father and his fa a boy and his father are involved in a car accident. The boy is taken to hospital and into surgery. On seeing him, the surgeon says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son, who is a surgeon. So you already know that this, it's an old one, right? It you say this, uh, you know, but, but the point is, we all know the story, but yet, they are, even though it's an old story, when it was said to a female surgeon, she looked momentarily blank. And then she suddenly was horrified at her own reaction. So what am I saying by giving you that as an example? What I'm saying is, but man or woman, we've created our own gender stereotypes. And so if we are looking towards improving that in terms of gender, in terms of, of looking at our unconscious bias towards gender, we have to look, look at so many different levels of the stereotypes that we've created. Interview questions, um, job descriptions, what kind of words do you use in a job description? Um, you know, positional bias. What makes a woman better suited to be a secretary or a receptionist? Why can't a man fill that? Go to school. Um, you know, when you're taking your child to school, not go to school, when you're taking your, your four-year-old, five-year-old to, to, to uh, primary school, to kindergarten, to nursery, um, are there majority women standing there? And if there is a man, 
are you looking at that man and thinking, hmm, what's he doing there? Why hasn't he got a job? Or are you accepting it just as you would accept the woman to be there with the child? Toys, you know. So, so what I'm trying to say is there are so many different kinds of unconscious bias we can have towards gender without even, without even realizing it. We, you and I included, we would look at certain things and we might instinctively, unconsciously think, oh, that's strange. Why, why did she do that? Or, you know, you could be sitting on a, on a train or a bus or a tram and going somewhere and there is a woman opposite you who is reading a book on engineering. And do you ask yourself, hmm, God, a woman reading a book on engineering? That's interesting. Or do you just say, oh, so big deal? Do you see what I'm saying? So there are so many different areas that we can look at, and I can keep talking about that. But, uh, you know, terminations, when you're firing somebody, do you ever fire a female employee for asking to be treated equally? Have you ever not fired a male employee who's been involved in sexual harassment? Um, interview questions, do you ask different questions to men? Do you ask different questions to women? All kinds of things. I could keep going on forever, but I'll stop for now. We all have so many of these different biases. And do you have any recommendations for our listeners about how they can address their own unconscious bias? That's a really big one. Um, as you know, you, you already mentioned that I'm doing this uh, session on the 7th, uh, Are You Conscious of Your Unconscious Bias? And that's going to be half a day. And even half a day is not long enough, in my opinion, to really start giving people pointers to address their own conscious bias. But, but I suppose one takeaway that I, could, that I could throw out, really, is that be more introspective, become more self-aware. Um, the, the, the big thing is to acknowledge that you have an unconscious bias, that we have biases and we are not aware that we have some biases. So try and make ourselves more conscious of our unconscious bias. That's pretty much it. I mean, it's much more than that, but it's, it's the first step. Be more self-aware, be more introspective. Got it. Thanks. Now, interestingly, and maybe even a little depressingly, there's been some recent research that shows that those people who believe they're not biased are, in fact, likely to be the most biased. So, um, Smitha, could you tell us a bit about that research and also how do you advise that we work with those individuals? Well, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, um, I mean, there's a lot of research done around this, but I'll for, for, for in the interest of time, I'll give you a couple of examples. In 2011, um, a social psychologist named Jonathan Heilert, he conducted an experiment uh, with a large group of people in the U.S. What he started off by doing is he asked them to show uh, a show of hands um, which political party they supported, and the result was noted. And then there was, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this enormously, uh, and then there was further discussion. And then a team went out and asked each individual person a series of questions to see how willing they would be personally to do something that could be considered discriminatory against a conservative in terms of a political party. And what was interesting is that close to 19% reported they would have a bias against a conservative-leaning person, 24% against um, conservative-leaning applications, and yet, what these people, and there were 37 people, 37% who said they would, they would be against choosing a conservative as a future colleague. But yet, when asked in terms of the questions, they all persisted. There was about a 70 to 80% of them persisted in saying that they were not being discriminatory, that they couldn't be discriminatory. 
Am I making sense? So they were saying that they wouldn't be discriminatory when they were being asked the questions. And yet, when they were asked with a show of hands, they were showing that they could be. So they were contradicting themselves. So even though they wanted to believe that they were not discriminatory, when questions were asked, they showed that they are discriminatory. And this really is, is a, in itself an unconscious bias, which is called a confirmation bias. And what I mean by confirmation bias is that it's, it's, it's a, a, a cognitive science, a psychological term that says that you believe something and therefore you go out there and find reasons to prove to yourself that your belief is right. Or another way of putting it is wish-fulfilling prophecy. So if I say I am not biased, then I'm going to try and prove to the world that I am not biased. And therefore, if you're going to come and say to me, hey, listen, I'm doing a session on unconscious bias, let's all go and attend it, I'm going to say to you, why do I need to go and attend it? Because I'm not biased. And I will find reasons and explanations to give you to tell you that I'm not biased. And unfortunately, what that says about that individual or individuals is that they are very um, lacking in self-awareness or introspection. So I was saying to your earlier question, you know, what kind of recommendations would you have to address unconscious bias? And I had said, make them more self-aware. Let, you know, ask the individual to be more introspective. And that's what I would say to someone who is saying, hey, listen, we don't have any biases. But we're not going to be, t it's, it's a, how do I put it? It's, if you're saying to me that you don't have any biases, I can't say to you, actually, yes, you do. Please listen and try and, and, and open your mind and, and discuss it because you're telling me that you don't have any biases. So all I can do then in communicating with you is show to you with my own honesty and my own self-awareness that I have biases. And so if I can be open with my own communication with you, you as in the individual who, who is saying that he doesn't have any biases, they might then have the confidence to show back to me that maybe I can begin to try and acknowledge that I might have some biases. It's very complicated, and I'm answering this question very simplistically, and I'm hoping that I've made some sense. But it is very much about persevering, being open and honest with the individuals that, who, who suggest they don't have biases, and giving them the confidence to accept that maybe they too may be biased. The best way of creating trust and influencing behavior, of course, is by showing the team or the individual that none of us are perfect. We're all fallible, and it's okay to say we have biases. So give them that confidence, and hopefully something will come out of it. Right. It is indeed a very complicated thing, but I'm sure those that attend your sessions at the WE Conference in India are going to walk away with some, some new ways to handle and, and deal with it. I hope so. Yes, and, and so Smitha, is there a final thought you'd like to share with our audience of, of SWE members? Well, I mean, it's saying it and then saying it and then saying it again, really. Uh, what I was just saying earlier on, I mean, unconscious bias is not a big bad monster. Don't see it as a big bad monster. Don't be defensive about when we're talking about unconscious bias. Don't be defensive about it. Be open to new experiences. Be honest with yourself. Um, because if we can be more aware of our unconscious bias, it is so hugely beneficial at so many levels. It's the way I see it. It's sort of the bedrock, the foundation 
of everything that we do, whether it's personal relationships or leadership or organizational development or anything else. So, you know, it's a first step. And it's little baby steps. Hopefully, the more we think about it, the more aware of it, the better we'll get at it. Yes, baby steps indeed. Smitha Tharoor is the founder of Tharoor Associates. Smitha, thank you for participating in this conversation and contributing to Sui's diverse podcast speaker series. Thank you. I enjoyed that. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to explore additional offerings from SWE Advance at advancelearning.swe.org.